0: It's time for Lost Cast, the
1: Lost Decade Games Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Lost Cast, episode Two two zero zero. I'm Matt Hackett. And I'm Jeff Blair. Did you ever think we'd get this far? Uh no.
0: I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't honestly I just didn't think about it, you know? I
1: didn't either, yeah. We just jumped in.
0: When we started podcasting back, and I don't even
1: remember now. <laughs> five years, actually, it was five years ago this month. I think Nov. Wait, that doesn't sound right. I thought it was February. Anyway, it no, February February was, oh, it was Independence. Or our Independence Independence Day, yeah. stupidest word ever. That's right.
0: <laughs> but our first episode of Lost Cast was was actually in it was November eighteenth, uh, two
1: thousand eleven. Wow. wow, we were That's just such close. young chickens. <laughs> Hello, everyone. We've made one game. <laughs> They're former like experts. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible audio quality. Probably. Probably. I've always prided myself that I think Lost Cast maybe has a little better audio quality. I'm I'm shooting myself in the foot right here. No uh I mean like
0: um now versus then, I think. Oh, I hope so. Like we're we're better hosts, right? No, I thought we had like <laughs> worse gear when we started.
1: Oh, we would have, yeah. We didn't get the, the huck gear. Which we're we're grateful to get. Yes. Man, we got a lot of stuff. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for uh, all the support recently. This has been really cool. Um, We have a new patron, even. We got Olav. Welcome. Good to have you. Thanks, Olav. Yeah, thanks for joining us. 200 episodes. We got 42 patrons, which that answers the question. What is the meaning of life? It's getting 42 people together in a room who agree. Let's give these guys some money, even though they're not giving us anything other than free podcast <laughs> that's the answer it's love that's the answer to the meaning of life
0: oh yes anyway we're giving them a friendly conversation
1: that's what it is we don't actually offer anything f- extra for your money but th- thank you for your donation
0: <laughs> i mean if you look at it in a weird sense it's like we're charging people to be friends with us
1: it's kind of messed up that is a little weird you know we need no. good rewards that's the thing i want to give good rewards i just don't know what they would be you know i think that yeah. the uh the mentorship one is really cool but that's like it's it a high because do- it has to be almost because like an hour of your time like it can't just be like give us five bucks and i'll go on the street and cry and be in poverty <laughs> you know yeah.
0: and it, it doesn't scale super well either right
1: yeah i mean you know having 100 patrons giving you 100 bucks a month would be a uh, good problem to have but that would take a lot of your time right yes so, I mean, that's fine. I mean, you can make a whole business out of that, but like, is that, that what you would want to be, be doing? Or, yeah, yeah, and the audience too, like, they don't really, they would rather, I would think, I'm here, I am shoving words into your, into your mouths, but I would assume the audience would prefer just like, dude, give us more podcasts, right? Yeah. How about every, how about five days a week, Jeff? How about Lost Cast every day? <laughs> <laughs> you got to talk to me. I don't <laughs> think I can handle that. Yeah. You'd be like, it's oh, too much. You're like, by, not- by like Tuesday, you're like, you got your head and hands just Tuesday okay (laughs) so topics here we go uh you've been working on something interesting and uh I think kind of a little out of your comfort zone I would assume on mobile ways yeah we'll talk about that uh we're gonna pinch Jeff more on that later uh I have a little story to tell about shenanigans which is a word that we use a lot to describe basically um I guess emergent behavior in a game right stuff happening that you wouldn't expect yeah, which I hope will bleed into the next conversation, which is finally I've been teasing this one for probably months now. But item stacking, <laughs> jeez, want to talk about item stacking? Next, we have a question from Warspawn about the holidays and holiday games, and then a shout out from Aaron, and then uh, two questions from Andre. Always love Andre's questions, and uh, that's the order we're going to try to get through them in. We'll see how it goes. It might be a future episode. We'll see. It just depends how long we babble about whatever. <laughs> All this and more. <laughs> <laughs> Last cast <guess>, two hundred, <laughs> and possibly two hundred one. Yes, and maybe even two hundred two. Let's be realistic. This is this is tangent cast. Yes. Anywho, uh, I'm gonna pinch you, but I I can't reach. I'm trying to reach through the internet. Pinch, pinch, pinch. They're they're the worst kind of person. Pinch. All right, let's hear it. What have you been uh, <laughs> What have you been doing? Uh, so
0: I've been working on uh, some contract stuff, and I'm working on a mobile game uh, that requires. Pinch. like a pinch and zoom map pinch, type pinch. thing. And I, and I had to basically write this from scratch in JavaScript with nothing. Fun. Um, because, you know, part of the thing that I'm doing at this company is uh, evaluating their JavaScript stack and like writing new foundational libraries and that kind of stuff. Nice. Um, <clears throat> but it's interesting because like, you know, it's not like a super hard problem, but I was sort of surprised at how much you know, how many different pieces this thing touched, this one little feature, right? So it's like uh the game I'm working on is a board game essentially and you can uh there's a board and <laughs> one of the requirements yeah is <laughs> that you can like zoom into the board and zoom out and like once you're zoomed in you can scroll around and stuff. And you gotta be able to like drag and drop things onto the board, off to the board, stuff like that. Yep. Yep. Um so like you know the basic ticket so what what i you know all software companies have this problem right where you get and we have this problem too right where you get these really sort of simple sounding tickets (laughs) that are just like a one-liner oh yeah and it's like this ticket was like you know pinch and zoom the board and i'm like okay no problem i'm like like i understand that right like okay I, i know what you're asking right you want the board to to be able to zoom in zoom out and blah 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 like i get it it's fine no other description, right? Which is fine. <laughs> I kind of, like, I get the requirements. Sure, sure. But when you have to build it from scratch, there are so many pieces going on, right? Yeah. Like, first of all, there's just input gestures. And input gestures, I think, you know, the more I've uh, delved into this is, like, that's a, there's a lot going on there, right? Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of, like, kind of under-the-surface complexity and really kind of subtle behavioral bugs that can creep up. And and it's all like very mathy and and sort of hard to debug in a lot of ways. I like
1: that word mathy. That's <laughs> mathy. useful.
0: <laughs> well, it's like you know a lot of like this kind of stuff where you're like, "Oh, I need to translate, you know, oh, like so for example, you know, you clicked on this spot on the board. But the board is currently at this zoom level, right? Yeah. And it's currently offset from the top left by, you know, x versus y or whatever. Right. So you have all these kind of like different things going on, right? Where you've got where on the screen is kind of the container of the board, right? Yeah. Where within that container of the board is the scrollable board. Yeah. Uh and then, you know, where within the relative positioning of this board are you touching and you know, when you're talking about things like pinching and zooming, you know, you're talking about two Two touches that you need to then find the midpoint of and kind of calculate a scaling factor and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, anyways, it's it's been a pretty interesting uh, route to kind of go go through all that stuff. But I ended up, you know, having um, a pretty nice like input gesture library out of it that kind of sits on its own <laughs> and it just. <laughs> Can you hear the cat? She does not like pinching. No. <laughs> Don't pinch that cat. That's actually Loki. He's like, oh. He, he i would guess the uh, netflix yeah <laughs> he brings in this uh purple monkey it's his stuffed animal
1: oh oh is and that you, the one that he throws
0: yeah it's the one he throws around for i himself.
1: remember one of the first times i was at your house and we were hanging out having a co-work uh just a a cat toy landed on my laptop <laughs> yeah and whoa like it kind <clears> of <throat> surprised me because my my cats have never done that where they throw something and then chase it crazy yeah No, he like he like sits
0: on top of it and he kicks it up with his back feet. Yeah, and it goes super high in the air, and then he'll like
1: chase it around or whatever. I love it. It you know it adds a lot of (laughs) of liveliness to your house, right? (laughs) Oh, something just went flying by. This place is crazy. Toys. Yeah, right. I like it.
0: (laughs) Anywho, video Uh,
1: video games. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Anyway, so the input like gesture library is like its own black hole, right? Of things that you can do and for this particular implementation like i needed to support at least pinch zoom obviously and like drag and pan right um and and and, and like you don't want those things to you don't kinda, want to pan
1: while you're zooming you yeah, don't you exactly. don't want to pinch while you're panning <laughs> pinch pan zoom
0: <laughs> plus like when you add in the requirement that like you know sometimes you're dragging some other like a a game piece right, right. onto the board and when you're dragging a game piece onto the board you know, it can seem suspiciously like you're trying to pan the board, but you're not, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to keep it, you know, keep track of all these things, and, and some of it gets hairy because you know you kind of cross these boundaries of concern. Uh, Ooh, in some ways, that's a good band name, man. <laughs>
1: boundaries of concern. Boundaries of concern. That would have to be guess, death
0: metal, right? Uh, I mean, absolutely right. Man, I love uh, all these or or terms. or just like emo, screamo.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I like it. Let's yeah. We'll start this next. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, anyways. Lost Cast um, Tribute Band. But what I mean, by boundaries of concern is like, for example, you know, the way that I wrote my board widget, it doesn't necessarily know, right, that the player is dragging a piece around. Do you... Because the piece comes from somewhere else, right? There's another right. UI widget that's got like your bank of pieces.
1: Right? Yeah. yeah. So do they communicate then? Do you say to, you know, (laughs) the the pinch code, you're like, yo, chill. I'm doing something else right now. So the way I did it was is I
0: kind of like pulled the input handling code back from the board, right? Like one way to handle it would be like the board just receives input events. Right. Right? And it just does whatever it needs to do. And that is okay and it works, but it puts you in the situation where then You know, if the board doesn't know that you're dragging a piece, um, then, you know, it doesn't know that it needs to not do whatever its default behavior is. Right. So I pulled it back a little bit and I handle the input stuff at like a, I guess, like an application level, like your main main entry point. Hmm. And then that code just kind of says like, you know, if I'm dragging a piece, then... Um, you know, do that or whatever. Right. Otherwise, send this whatever pinch zoom drag event stuff to to the board.
1: Right. This reminds me a lot of the stuff I've been doing with indie games in recently, where there are a lot of, you know, uh doubling up of user interface stuff. Like, for example, it used to be a serious problem. You're trying to drag a slider and you'd move your mouse. Actually, that's still a problem. You move to another slider and the previous slider thinks you're still sliding, or like you're trying to draw a tile and then you you let your mouse up but in the wrong place and the drawing continues even, even though you let your mouse up and then it like ruins a portion when you drag your mouse over.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's kind of just the subtlety of all this input stuff, right? right? And uh, one of the ways that we handled it in Jin was kind of uh, the very straightforward way, which is that like there's some input code that aggregates all the input events and then it sends it down through the scene graph, right? Yeah. And each node in the scene graph can choose to respond and there's like a little bit of um, code there that tries to make it nicer by saying certain elements can't, like will cancel.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, cancel the event. So it's kind of like a um, it doesn't bubble up, it it's goes kinda, the other thing. It's dom-y. Right? Sort of dom Well, it's dom but it's the one way, right? Like <laughs> dom, dom has two phases, right? It drills down and then it bubbles oh, up. yeah. I forget. There's like a term for one of them but I'm I'm I so far it, out of the web dev world that I I thought it I was forgot. bubble, Yeah. There well, there's, there's is,
1: literally a, a property cancel bubble. Well, bubble is when
0: it comes up yeah. through the DOM, right. right? But the other one is when it goes down. So, like Jin only implements the down, right? right? Yeah, because the clicks get trapped at the highest Z-order elements first. Right.
1: They don't come up through the bottom Z-elements. That is not something I recommend re-implementing in your HTML5 no. game engine. <laughs>
0: Well, I don't think that we really even need bubbling anyway for what we do. But uh, anyways, um, the point is, is that I'm actually kind of moving away from that model a little bit more because as you were kind of talking to a second ago, like that creates a lot of weird situations where when each node kind of gets all this raw input, you know, it like doesn't, it doesn't have the complete picture of what's going on. And that's, that's sort of problematic in a lot of ways. And especially for things like you were talking about, like you you press down on an element, right? Right. And then you move off and then you raise your finger or whatever, or your mouse. Yeah. You know, in that scenario, that element that input went down on doesn't ever get an up event, right? And so if something is happening and it's waiting for this up event that never comes, like it'll still be highlighted or it'll still be whatever right yeah who knows
1: that's the exact problem i have in indie game sim because you'll let your mouse up just outside of a slider because the sliders are kind of narrow and thin right and i basically need that layer on top where it'll say okay the mouse went up everybody's listening to the mouse shut up now but it doesn't do that it like remembers right it's like hey i didn't get a mouse up event so to me i think you're still wiggling this slider around
0: so I've been thinking more about this stuff and I think that
1: it's actually
0: interesting to try and attack this stuff almost like collision
1: in like a physics sim. Oh, like the enter and stay and leave and all that?
0: Yeah, like you basically have a higher level piece of code that sits in between your scene graph and your input layer, right? And so the input layer just says like, hey, touches, gestures, taps, clicks, pinches, whatever, here's some coordinates, blah, 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 right? Yeah. Uh, And then this kind of like translation layer, I guess, would sit, you know, it would know about the scene graph. And then it, instead of saying like, hey, scene graph, I'm going to like send this event to you. You, Like you propagate it to all your children and do whatever it is that you want to do, right? Yeah. Uh, I think it might be smarter to have it kind of say like, you know, you can almost treat the scene graph as a quad tree too, too, right? Like Mm. if you have a scene graph, you can take all of those... Rectangles that make up your scene graph nodes, and you can plot them onto a quad tree. And you know you can say like, "Hey quad tree, <laughs> I have uh, a finger down at this location. Like, tell me what things are hitting it, right?" Mm-hmm. And then you know the quad tree would say like, "Well, you've got you know these three elements, and here they are ordered by. There's the index, right? Right. And then you can keep track of those three elements, perhaps, right? And so you know when you move your finger around and you get an up event." You can say like, "Hey, uh," there," you know, "Hey (laughs) QuadTree, what elements are under my cursor now, or whatever?" And you get another list back, and then you can compare those two lists, and then you can fire the leave event or whatever for uh, for things that aren't you know actively colliding anymore. Which is exactly how the enter leave code collision works in like something like Soul Thief, right? Like when you're like, "Oh, I'm on a teleporter, or I'm off a teleporter," right? Yeah. So, anyways, um, I think that's interesting when you find kind of two problem sets that have a lot of overlap conceptually.
1: Ooh, a lot of collision. (laughs) Yes, they collide. Yeah, okay, that was good. That was good. That Um, is interesting. That's a that's a really hard problem, and uh, it's one of those things in game dev that you know by itself. Let's say you're working in isolation, right? You've got no other complicated, uh, you know, game setup going on. You're just Zooming in and out like a a tile map that just repeats itself, right? It's really basic. There's no other user interface. There's no other, like, necessarily pieces to move around or anything. So you're working on that kind of feature in isolation. I feel like it can be relatively simple to solve, right? But that's not really necessarily where the the challenge is for that. The challenge is you've got to have that work in harmony with all these other moving parts. And that's where it gets, it goes from, like, a, a difficult problem to a really challenging problem. Yeah. Yep. And you did it, it sounds like. Uh it's get there. Is it buggy? Or, yeah, of or, course. Or Jeffy, as, <laughs> I, as I like to call it.
0: <laughs> so it, like all my pinch zoom stuff is basically working. Um, but I feel like the like scaling algorithms can be refined a little bit, right? Like the math behind how much you decide to zoom the board based on how far apart and how fast the person's fingers are moving, right? Oh right. Like just detecting that there is a pinch gesture and that it's getting bigger, not smaller is step one. Right. Yeah. And then step two is like, you know, coming up with some way to say, here's a value uh, based on this distance that I can use to then change the scaling of my board. Right. Uh, man. I bet you've got so many normals floating around. There's a lot of crap. And then furthermore, you know, there's like, well, I also want to scale the board with the scaling center being, you know, the center of the midpoint between your two touches, right? (laughs) Yeah. Because you you kind of, like, when you're zooming in, you want to zoom in in the center of your fingers or zoom out in the center of your fingers, not just, you know, from the upper left or whatever. Right. Tricky, man. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff. And, you know, there's this other kind of requirement where you need to clip the, the, the game board, right? Uh you have this all these graphics being drawn kind of like at weird scrolling offsets. And uh, I mean in HTML5 Canvas, that's that's pretty easy, right? You yeah. there's a clip property. Um OpenGL has something similar ish. Uh, it's called Scissor, but like this is something I had to learn. Um hmm. a scissor API, which is actually pretty straightforward. But it doesn't, you know, the thing with the scissor API in WebGL or OpenGL, is that it's just a, uh, it's an axis aligned bounding box. So it it does not ever rotate, as Hmm. far as I can tell. And if you want to do a rotated version, you have to like get into more complicated, I think it's stencil masking. Whereas um, I think that with the clipping rectangles, you can just draw, like in HTML5 Canvas, you can just draw a path with the path drawing tools and then say, hey, clip this path, right? And so you can do basically any arbitrary shape you want. So 3D is more complicated? What? <laughs> yes. That stupid.
1: <laughs> that sounds hard. Yeah.
0: Anyways, and so, like, this is all stuff that kind of had to happen before, you know, I could even start working on the application code, right? For oh, this man. feature. Right. <laughs> is the game done yet? No. Every day is the game done yet? Like, I'm still <laughs> pinching,
1: working on pinching code. S- still zooming. Anyways,
0: <laughs> uh, it's interesting stuff. So, very good cool. Times.
1: I like that you are uh, out of your comfort zone because if Jeff left to his own devices was working on stuff, it would be, you know, desktop stuff, right? Probably. And yeah. I don't think you would sit there and be like, man, today I really want to sit down and work on mobile pinch. But there's lots of interesting parts there. And it's like, you know, you grow as a developer or whatnot. Yeah. The further out of your, you know, normal <clears throat> comfort zone that you're in. And it's like, uh,
0: I think that you know, even if I don't necessarily need to use pinch and zoom again, uh, in the near future, I think that it has sort of like changed the way I think about input events. Mm. Right. And, and I think that's a good thing, right? Because that is something that left to my own devices. I would need to improve, right? Cause that's right. like, we were talking about sort of not the best in our game engine right now.
1: Yeah. Man, the more I work on games, the more I just want to work on games with a single input method. And uh, I think mobile is really attractive in that regard. I mean, it's less attractive than it was because of the things that you're talking about, right? Like pinch, you know, and having to calculate multiple fingers and I've even seen some applications where to pan you have to use three fingers. So it's like one to touch the objects in the game, two to pinch, and then three to pan, and it was just like I don't want to deal with all that crap. I'm sure there's libraries that can abstract it away for you and like You know, for all we know, Unity just solves it. It's like yeah, it's a three finger API or whatever, right? Yeah, I would think that any you know
0: sufficiently friendly game dev environment would give that to you for (laughs) free-ish. So
1: I guess yours is not a sufficiently friendly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hostile towards Jeff. The one that I'm working on with my contract work. Yeah, it sounds like the old the Wild West, right? Where you got to do it all yourself. Like you're just in an environment where those tools aren't uh, aren't given to you. You got to make them. Well, it's because like we're building those tools right now, right? Yeah.
0: That's the like it's a startup and it's sure. still not in beta, so it's like this yeah. is the period where we're actually trying to build these foundational things out so that people that come later
1: you know they'll have is you're building the foundation for future generations. They won't have it as bad as me. <laughs> you're working towards a brighter a brighter future. platform for our future. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really um, so, yeah, you're you're doing good work here, sir it's so altruistic <laughs> you care about our children that's yes. right <laughs> yeah anyways i just like you know with soul thief it's got um the gamepad and the keyboard and people request the mouse and then wizard lizard obviously had all of those things because we're stupid and then even indie game sim it's it's largely mouse you can you have to use the mouse in a lot of places and then keyboard is everywhere as well and if you want to play a side screen platformer game chances are you're going to want to use a gamepad so that's in there too and I'm like, man, my next game is just mouse, nothing but mouse. And I want like when people request anything else, I want an all caps, just the biggest letters N, O, in a period. It's <laughs> <laughs> just like a non-starter. No, no because I, I'm just I'm so tired of dealing with those problems. And like I think as as it as evidenced by what you're working on now, because you're a dude who's been on the web stack for probably over ten years at this point, right? well over like you've got a ton of experience and here you are again like you know writing stuff that um that other platforms might have out of the box it's like the more inputs you have to deal with the more like you will (laughs) you have to wade through them yourself and have to tie them all together and as we were saying earlier that's the complicated part right like just keyboard by itself not that bad just gamepad by itself but working them all together and then it becomes like oh my god each one of these inputs is like slowly killing me you know (laughs) right <laughs> simplicity i just want to like i want to narrow my surface area so i can make more stuff just fewer problems to worry about yeah part of the problem is that the stuff that i'm working on has some pretty
0: harsh performance requirements too. right yeah um so it's like not as simple like even though i'm working in javascript it's not as simple as saying like hey like grab hammer js and <laughs> you know just dump it in brute right? force it yeah yeah
1: yeah, that's a problem. When you're, uh, you know, you're on mobile and you're working in HTML5, you've got like this tiny little sliver of, like this is how much uh, of the you know, CPU you, we would like you to use. And you're like, oh, crap. <laughs> Super optimized. <laughs> it's, not, it's not enough. Yeah. Okay. Anyways. Cool. Oh, wow, I can't believe we talked about that for half an hour.
0: Let's hear all about <laughs> your real-life shenanigans.
1: Real-life shenanigans. All right, I got a cute little story for you, and it's leading into real-life shenanigans, which... As we were talking about earlier, it's uh, especially in Soul Thief. We're finally getting the shenanigans right in Soul Thief, where everything's in the same collision pool. If Monster A attacks, you know, the player, it could very well hit Monster B. Zombies don't walk through spikes. Like, you know, a was Lizard one had that problem. There's no inconsistencies, or fewer <laughs> inconsistencies, was... <laughs> not none. Let's be realistic here, Matt. So I'm talking about shenanigans here. Uh, we got a dog recently, not recently anymore. I guess it's been a while, but his name's Koopa. And he looks like a corgi, spray painted German Shepherd. He's the cutest dog I've ever seen in my life. I love him to death. He was a rescue dog and he's like he he's kind of trainable. There's certain things he'll probably just never do. <laughs> Maybe I'm just bad <laughs> at training. But uh like he already had sit foundations there, you know, like he had an of an idea that, of what you wanted from him. And we Let's teach see. him other stuff. Like instead of lay down we went with the flop because he just naturally has this flop he'll just do. He just lays on his back and puts his paws up and like rub my baddie. Melts my heart, man. Uh, How can you resist? How can you resist? I can't. I just get in there and like rub a (laughs) bob, rub that fluff. (laughs) So, uh, Andrea, my lovely wife, she decided to teach him how to shake because that's cute. And she nailed it. She did it in like one day. And, Mm. you know, the other stuff took several days. So, she's better at this than I am and uh somebody at work was giving her some tips or something and they were like you know be careful because when you teach your dog how to shake he's gonna just start clawing at you all the time like oh my god sometimes when i do things with my hands you give me food right right (laughs) they don't really know what's going on they're not like now koopa this is a handshake this is a greeting among (laughs) (laughs) you know several members of society no he's like what if i do this you give me meat right so um that happened and it's really adorable and then um My wife and I are hanging out in the kitchen. I think she's preparing some food or something. And I'm just like sitting on the back of the couch with my legs kind of dangling. And I do that. I think I realized this actually, because my mom used to not allow it. You could not sit on any part of any furniture that wasn't the part you're supposed to sit on, you know, put your (laughs) butt here. So now I think I've realized as as an adult, I like sitting on the parts of furniture that you're not supposed to. (laughs) Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But the point is that my legs were super dangly, right? And I'm like sitting here drinking coffee or something just chatting with the wife and I feel something on my foot and I look down and my dog is like the cutest thing I've ever seen. My dog is sitting there pointing at me sitting and he has his paw on my foot like a shake. (laughs) He's shaking with my foot and I'm just like, you know, sipping coffee, look down and then I just like I got I call it slapped in the face with cute where like it has a physical effect on me. You know or sometimes it happens like someone shows you a little cat video or you know a picture in your face and you normally you're like, "Oh, that's cute." But then other times like I react violently, <laughs> like fall out of a chair. Oh my oh, no. god, it's so cute. I'll do that kind of a thing. And So did you go
0: <laughs> head over heels over the couch?
1: I <laughs> Oh, horsey here. Yeah, I fell backwards in the coffee and <laughs> all over my face. No, oh, I was <laughs> no. <laughs> I just thought it was really cute and that is the essence of shenanigans because we taught our dog when you see a human body part hanging out <laughs> like in a, in a handshake gesture like my hand because like my foot when the way it was dangly my foot hanging out looked like a hand right to him it's it's just an appendage right and he's like when i see a human appendage i put my appendage on the human appendage and then the food goes in my mouth <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't know he just sh- like, like he saw a foot thought it was a hand and he shakes it and um that's the thing about shenanigans. That's the thing about emergent gameplay. I never would have thought, hey, if we teach him how to shake, he might shake our feet and that would be really cute and make me really happy. I never would have thought of that. Yeah. Instead, it's something where you, you give the dog the, the, the foundation, right? The basics. And in this context, it's almost a hard thing, I would think, to, tr- to teach a dog. Like a hand is different than a foot, right? Or like you're only going to get a treat in this context. I think those kinds of things, the dog's going to be like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I can understand. Put my paw on your hand or foot thingy. Like, you you have paws. I have paws, you have paws. Put my paw on your paw and you give me treats, you know? Right. I think it maybe, you know,
0: kind of says something about how you should structure these things for optimal shenanigans, right? <laughs> it's like, the more specific your game code is to the situation at hand, yeah. the less likely shenanigans are to be probably right that's it
1: exactly yeah so any cases where like if i want to look at a certain entity type like oh i'm only going to react to you know oh if a cannon hits me or something like that or like a player is a common one right if player then do this thing and i i want to limit that kind of stuff right because that's that you know like you were saying the more precision there koopa wouldn't have shaked my foot and i wouldn't have uh had a (laughs) had a great laugh and just a really adorable experience right
0: Right, so like if Koopa was programmed to only shake hands, (laughs) if he knew the difference between a hand and a
1: foot. Yeah. yeah. And even if you would have asked me at the time, do you want Koopa to shake hands or do you want him to just (laughs) shake people? Shake anything? Yeah. I would have been like, well, hands is the goal here, but uh, the reality is shake my foot. That's pretty great, too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that bleeds into Soul Thief because, you know me, I can't just live my life. Something like this happens to me, and I really enjoy the experience, and I think, hmm, video games. (laughs) How does this relate back to making better (laughs) games, right? So uh, item stacking, finally, item stacking. Um, I talked recently, I guess, about the Soul Thief redesign, and a big part of that was our items. We had been lamenting for like six months or something that, you know, we never really nailed the itemizations. uh, We're like, you know, in a Wizard's Lizard, the original... um, the itemization was just kind of all over the place. It was very, like, uh, slot-based, I guess, like, gear-heavy. So, like, this is a helmet, and you got to pick between these two helmets, and there's gloves, and there's boots, and there's rings, and there's armor, like, for your, you know, torso, you know. It's all this stuff. And then what we wanted, though, was more of, like, a harmony kind of thing, um, where you pick up an item, and, yeah, they all just go together. And, like, I was Lizard 1 especially had this where it was like, you know, you will be leaving gear behind because it's either in a slot that you already have, or it, like items just don't stack. And we let those kind of bad habits bleed into Soul Thief, right? Yeah. So when I was doing the redesign, I was trying to be very cognizant of, you know, I want these items to harmonize together and maybe even be stackable. But the thing is, is uh, especially with itemization in, in this kind of a game, it's not really so simple. For example, let me go through... Um, I forget what I call these utilities, I guess, but we have items like the compass, right? And this is a classic Zelda item or the map, right? And you get it and it says, here is your map and it shows it to you or like compass. So here are the special rooms, right? And when I think about item stacking, I think about stuff like would multiple versions of this item together help you out more. For example, there's like a, um, let's see. Uh, attack cooldown. It makes your attacks faster, and those stack. If you get five of those, your attack's gonna be five times faster or whatever, right? But the compass is not gonna stack. You're not gonna get. I mean, you could. That's the thing. That's the conversation I kind of wanna have, right? But it's not. It's meant to be a boolean item. Or like, how about this one? uh Leech prevents poison. The heat rock yeah. prevents freezing. And there's things you could do. Like, let's say for example, heat rock instead of preventing all freezing right off the bat, it, it gives you like a twenty-five percent chance to prevent freezing, right?
0: Or it reduces the duration of freezes by five percent, and oh. then you know the next one reduces it by ten percent, oh, fifteen. Hang
1: on, I gotta. That's. That <laughs> I gotta write this shit down. State. Yeah, that's good. But then that that also poses more questions, right? Like, let's say it, it does. It reduces your chance to get frozen by twenty five percent. Does that stack? And if so, is it like when you get four, so you go 25, 50, 75, and now you have hundred percent when you get when you get four? Because that is kind of narrow minded stacking. Is it instead yes. that when you get frozen, you get a 25% chance times four? Does that make sense? So like, okay, one time I'm going to roll, like say you roll a four-sided die, right? And if you get a one, you skip it. So you roll one and, and uh, you, know, you get like a two. So you, you have not bypassed the freeze, but you get four shots. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's the thing. I don't really know how they should it gets stack. Complicated. It does. It like, gets really complicated. And there's, there's nothing really so simple uh, I mean, I guess there are, like, some of these items are um What
0: if they were straightforward consumable to an extent? Like, you know, basically you have, you know, if you pick up a anti-freeze item, you have one charge of you don't get frozen, right? Right. And then as soon as you, as soon as that charge is used up, you get frozen 100% of the time from, from then on. Right. But that way, like, you could pick up multiple, you know, It's like, oh, basically like we could reduce the cost of the item, right? Right. Instead of making it like a high price item that makes it so you're never frozen ever again, it might be more interesting if it were like more of a consumable item that you see more of, right? We could drop it more often. We could sell it more often. We could sell it for cheaper. Um, And then it was like, yeah, more like a one-time use. And then you could stack like, oh, I have five stacks of antifreeze and, you know, Hmm. whatever. I like that a lot. I'm going to steal that from you and make it my own. Is it really stealing when we work for the same company? I mean... Shh, it's mine. <laughs>
1: it's mine fine. now. You have no rights to it. Okay. <laughs> no recorded proof that you came up with it. That's really nope. cool. I like that a lot. Uh, consumables, man. <clears throat> like, I think consumables are the answers uh, a lot of times. To all of the world's problems. Kind of. <laughs> I mean, it just, it marries so much better. Um, actually, Andrea was telling me this the other day. She's really into this, like, interior design game. And she was saying how, like, everything you buy is consumable, and it's really smart because, you know, she's just going to keep playing the game. And it's the kind of thing where, like, let's say you buy a chair. And I think in my games, in our game designs, you buy a chair, you have a chair forever, which is a harder thing to design for with a game that, let's say, you play. Because, like, what a game gets out of a human being is a drip of their time, Right. Maybe I'll give you half an hour of my day every day, or maybe you only get five minutes when I'm on the can or something like that. You know what I mean? You get this small amount of my time, and any permanence that the game gives you, which is such a common thing, you know, oh, you unlocked the shield, and now you have the shield forever, or, oh, level three is unlocked now. Those permanent things don't fit as fluidly into a design where it's more like the game is getting some of your consumable time once in a while. It's not like I'm a player now forever. There is no permanence. There is no... Like, like there's not a constant there right so when you get a constant in the game now you have this constant now you have this level unlocked or whatever that is those two things are kind of in, like they contra- contradict each other a little bit i think
0: they do and like especially with the kind of game that we're sort of trying to design here right where there's a lot right. of replayability and a lot of you know kind of run-to-run differentiation you know yeah exactly uh yeah and then like i guess you know the more i think about it the fact that you can get it's like this permanent toggle between poison immunity and freeze immunity is it just doesn't fit. It's not harmonious, right?
1: It doesn't fit. Yeah. And it has that problem where, you know, you might get three heat rocks in a run and you get the first one. You're like, okay, that's pretty cool. You get the second one and you're like, I don't want that. It doesn't stack. You can't even pick it up right now, you know? And it starts right. to be something that's not just, you know, I, I don't desire it, but it's aggressively bad because you're like, I'm getting that instead of something I wanted. Right. With something else and- that would actually make a difference think about it this way too like when you have the heat
0: rock or whatever makes you freeze immune right like you no longer need to care about the mechanic at all right exactly you are completely immune you can just walk around in the ice you know 100 percent of the time it's fine right um the second you turn it into a consumable <clears throat> even if you have five stacks of it because it's a limited resource you still like it's still in your best interest to dodge those things right right Like, even if you could be immune to it, you know that I have limited immunity. And so, like, if I have a choice, like, I'm not going to walk right into it and waste it. Right. So I think that, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know why we didn't learn these lessons with AWL. (laughs) AWL one more concretely, (laughs) though. But, like, look at the disaster that permanence caused us there, right? Oh, yeah. With, like, the gold stacking and, like, the hostage rescuing and, like, the unlocking these items in, like, basically... We took the core of a game that was sort of replayable and then we just added all these permanent bullying things that, you know, after a certain point, like you didn't really need to play it that much anymore because like we we, we trivialized game mechanics, right? We trivialized gold because we gave you all this permanent gold. We trivialized the item drops because we gave you the blacksmith shop like at the beginning of the game.
1: Yeah, a big part of that is what we lament uh, over a lot, which is that the micro game, pretty good, you know? Not bad as far as action games like that go. The metagame, very weak. And a big part of that is because we played the micro to death all the time, just on our own, uh, in addition to testing and stuff, but the the metagame, never really, you know? Like, only these small little bite-sized chunks which is not the experience that people get you know like this is a game designed to be played for like 40 hours but we were not experiencing that and seeing problems with it I do feel like combining you know um, when when you're using something permanent that should be consumable it does feel like you're trying to fit like a square into a circle circular hole you know yeah. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, AWL one is so fraught with design issues uh, but you know maybe we can solve all those in soul thief yeah so let's see, compass. Compass could be something that you. It could be like for. Let's say you pick up the compass in the kitchen. It could be like that's your kitchen compass, and you get a compass in the courtyard. That's your courtyard compass, right? But when you get to right. when you get the compass, it doesn't bleed into the next dungeon. Now that would solve. It's not a. That's not a perfect uh, solution though, because no. you could still. that the way the generator works. You could still get two compasses in one dungeon and be annoyed. Or
0: no compasses in a dungeon, right? Yeah. The Not that you have to, but, you know.
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. The The feather is also like you now have floating forever. And that's kind of weak sauce as well. Uh, I have an idea.
0: I think that <laughs> basically what might be interesting is to turn most of what we consider to be permanent items into temporary buffs. Mm. Or buffs with charges, right? So, like... Right kind of going down the same route you know instead of maybe having this complicated inventory like oh you got this particular item right and you can press pause and you can like select it and like here's all your inventory right instead of that maybe it's something more like you know uh like wow or something right where you have like this on-screen display of like here are the buffs that you currently have right Mm -hmm. and you have freeze immunity three charges and maybe that buff is permanent until those charges are used, right? Like, it doesn't have a time limit. Right. But then you could have another buff. Like, here's the feather buff. Like, you get a feather, and you have floating for 60 seconds. Hmm. Right? And then, like, the picking up another copy of it could, like, extend the time by 60 seconds. So Ooh. it kind of stacks in, like, a different way. Right. Um. But, you know, even if it expires, you can still pick up another feather later. So right. basically, like, more like... um. Like an arcade game, right? Design it more like Mario or something where it's like, oh, you got a star power-up, you got a mushroom power-up, you got, you know, anti phrase power-up. All these things that you can get that kind of improve your character in many of the same ways, but there are conditions by which they will be removed from your character, right? Right. Uh, like, you know, the mushroom gets removed when you get take damage and the star gets removed after some period of time. And something like this freeze immunity shield would get removed, you know, when you would have taken freeze damage or whatever.
1: Maybe the compass disappears after you look at your map. We'll use eye <laughs> tracking. <laughs>
0: yeah, eye tracking. <laughs> you looked! You're done now. That's all you get. Right. No, the compass is really hard. The compass and map are, are very difficult items. Yeah. And I think that part of the problem with those is that, you know, they are... Items that are directly taken from a completely different game, right? <laughs> no, they're not. And, they're original. Yeah, no, they're not. Yeah, they're <laughs> completely original. I did
1: not play in Zelda when I was seven, and then again yeah. every year for the next 20 years. But, like, you know, that, that that's kind of the crux of the issue,
0: right? Is that it wasn't an item that we designed with this game in mind, right? It was yeah. an item that we said, like, hey, this has some <laughs> Zelda DNA in it. The map and the compass are perfect fits. And, yeah. like, to an extent, they do fit, right? And maybe... You know, maybe there's a world where it's okay to have some Boolean items, like, per dungeon or something. But I think that, you know, maybe in that case, it's something where, like, we would want to say that, you know, that item exists somewhat outside the normal generation. Where it's like, right. you know, hey, there's a compass room and a map room yes. in every distinct right. zone,
1: right? Oh, that... uh that's really good. So, that is the way that the Zelda Dungeons were designed, right? It's not like, right. hey, let's randomly give you some compasses. Here's five. Have fun. You know, it's it's not like that. And, yeah. and you're right. The compass has a sp- like a special spot. It is hard-coded. It's designed by hand. It's in a specific room. And the designers even know like when you're going to get it and what impact that will have on your playthrough, right? Oh, those items are
0: like, they don't affect the micro game, right? right. They are these weird sort of informational only items that don't actually interact with the game mechanics right right they just they give you a you know a UI tweak
1: so I think part of the problem is that we have basically it's itemization is not so simple it's not just you know every item is consumable and every item works like this and there you go it's that there's there's a bunch of these edge cases right and stuff like the compass and the map them being very special, they almost should be you know here is a deliberate room that is guaranteed to be there, but there's only one. And so, it's not, like the, you know, the compass is not part of the, the bag of items, like the bag of data, as we call it, where, you know, you, you get to pick one from there, and when it runs out, it'll replenish itself or whatnot. Like, right. the compass and the map don't make sense in there, because they're constant, whereas something like, you know, oh, the life seed here, you know, uh, when a monster dies, you get some health restored, and right now, that's just a permanent upgrade, and I think Right now, you either can't get two life seeds, or if you do, you'll just permanently get, like, let's say, three health when a monster dies, which that's going to get crazy quickly, right?
0: Yeah. But with what you've
1: proposed, it could be life seed, you've got one, a monster dies, you gain a health, the item goes away, everybody wins. (laughs) Or you gain a
0: health whenever a monster dies for 15 seconds, right? And it kind of puts you in this mode where you're like, oh, I got to kill a bunch of stuff to regain my health, right? And it it sort of, maybe, I mean, this sounds great. It sounds so much better (laughs) from a gameplay perspective than, like okay, like really nothing changes when you get the life seed other than you're like, great, I just passed over your gen health now. Yeah, right? that's true. It it doesn't really affect the way that you play the game very much, whereas, you know, a, a timed buff would.
1: So explain... Like it would add some urgency. Explain that to me again. What's the, what, is, what is the time factor with the life seed? Oh, I mean, there's many
0: ways to handle it, but like, you know, one of the conditions for any of these power-ups or buffs could be that, you know, it gives you whatever effect it gives you, but instead of permanently for just 15 seconds or 30 seconds or 60 seconds. Or oh, whatever and is I see. So
1: with life seed, you'd be like, okay, for the next 15 seconds, everything you kill gives you a life or something like that.
0: Right. Gotcha. Okay. And then, you know, maybe if you get, if you happen to get, uh, two of them, they could stack to, you know, just increase the time. Right. So it's right. like, it's by default, it's 10 seconds. And then, you know, seven seconds into it, you pick up another one. So you had three seconds left. And now you have 13 seconds, right. Or something. Right
1: that Um, might not be that bad even to implement i was thinking about how to message the interface but i think the way it would do it is you hit start and you bring up your item list and the item could just have like a number on there and it wouldn't even need to change because when the game like the only way for you to look at your items when the game is paused and the tick is not happening right
0: yeah but i feel like that's always been like a ui thing that we've struggled with has never felt great like i would honestly rather just see like a really small icon like up in the top of the screen kind of like a little buff bar right right And it's got like a very recognizable icon and it's got like a number on it, like a countdown or whatever, or, or charge, right? It's either got like, or both, right? It could be like, um, there's a number overlaid in the bottom right of the icon that says how many charges it has. And then there's a timer underneath it that counts down like how much time is left on it. Hmm. Um, yeah. And I think between those two mechanics, like basically buffs with charges and or durations, right? Right uh could have some pretty interesting effects. And then you wouldn't even need to press start and go to your menu, right? It would just be like, you know, here's your buff bar, right? And you've got anti-poison three charges and no timer on it because it's permanent until the charges get removed. And right. then you've also got uh, life seed for 10 seconds, which does whatever.
1: Right. Huh.
0: I like it. I guess we would need to mes- to message to the user like what each buff was doing if, you know
1: wanted to know but so the way i picture it i guess is you pick up life seed and it would appear in the corner and it probably have like a one charged by it and that's all that you get kind of i guess spelunky style where sometimes you know you see you see these big item bars and you're like i don't know half that stuff does it's okay right uh and because in this design you can hit start and it'll show your inventory and you can scroll through them where it'll show you the description of it yeah so i think that with those two things going on you would have enough information to where like it wouldn't be in your face. It wouldn't like stop. Like, okay, let's pause the game. You got a new item. Mega Man, Mega Man. And when you <laughs> yeah. press A and the, it gets used up after, you know, none of that. It would just be like, I'm in the corner. I'm here if you need me. Right. And if you're like, what is that? You can drill in with a, you know, press start. That's true. Yeah, I like that. Pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> okay. Uh, So basically it's like everything needs to be, not everything. I think it's, it's kind of two takeaways, I think, for me here. One is the items that are constant and permanent, like the compass and the feather and stuff like that. They are special and need to be treated as such. And what I'm kind of picturing is, um, for example, in the kitchen, we had this uh, kitchen banquet and we really liked the idea of there being these kind of off-by-one special rooms. It kind of al- alleviated that problem the game has sometimes where, you know, with randomly generated content, you're like, okay, I've seen a level just like this or a room just like this a dozen times, you know? But with something like the kitchen banquet, it can feel it can kind of toss up the monotony. You're like, whoa, what is this? A giant room full of stuff going on, and it's got this big, you know, announcement name and stuff. And that would be a good place, like those special rooms would be a good place. Like you know, in that room you're getting a permanent item. And maybe it like pulls from a different, you know, uh, bag of data, right? Which is like, okay, you don't have a compass yet, so now you're getting that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh that would work pretty well too, because I think there's five right now permanent items compass, feather, heat rock, leech, and map. And there's, you know <laughs> Who knows how much content we'll get to make in the end, but something around there, somewhere around there. So it would be like, you know, that, that would map well to, in each dungeon, if you if you look everywhere, there's going to be a special room where you get a permanent item. That's not too bad.
0: Yeah, but I think that we would want to move away from permanent items as much as possible anyway, right? Like, <clears throat> the feather and stuff, I really enjoyed the way we were thinking about that, which is that, you know, it becomes sort of a temporary buff with a time limit or something.
1: So what about stuff like compass though? where we land on that? Like with a compass, would it be, you get to look at the compass for a minute or would it be like, that's a permanent Or is it just tied to this dungeon? Like, what do you think for that? I think for that,
0: it would probably be tied to the zone and it would be like, you know, I, I think I would like to just take it more like harder in a Zelda direction. Yeah. Right. Uh, and kind of like, you know, make it so, you know every time we generate a zone we generate a compass room and a map right room for that dungeon we put them wherever and uh hopefully closer to the beginning than the end or something yeah um but basically you know have those two things there and then just have it work per zone um and then basically try not to have any other permanent upgrades
1: right <laughs> right and the heat rock and leech they should move to that scenario where like you get frozen and it's prevented but then you lose uh, your heat rock so yeah, it basically heat, becomes yeah. a passive consumable at that point right okay i'm liking this
0: and we could always like rebrand these things right like they don't have to they don't have to be such um you know permanent sounding things anymore what do you mean right? like we could just say it's like oh you got the anti-poison shield right ah. it's like a it's like a temporary buff yeah like something that sounds more temporary and
1: less like hey you pick it up put it in your pocket i'll call it the temporary heat rock <laughs> and the, the temporary <laughs> Shit, <it> leech <laughs> yeah i often kind of try to ride that line between something that i think is very just explicit and something that i think is kind of more whimsical and fun because heat rock is obviously a lizard reference you know like we used to have an iguana when i was growing up and the iguana loved to sit on the heat rock and lizards need it because they're cold-blooded and whatnot right but it's not really apparent. Like, okay, if it was if it was called anti-freeze shield, that's 100% clear, I think, to at least most English speakers. <laughs> right? Whereas heat rock yes. is like, I don't know. I, what's the best case scenario? Maybe half clear? Maybe less? But you can <laughs> right. go look. Right? Like I was saying earlier, you can hit start and go look. Like, what is heat rock? Yeah, what are these stupid designers trying to get? Okay, prevents pro- uh, freezing. Great. <laughs> I mean, I, I sort of like the whimsical stuff too. I wasn't saying that it should
0: literally be called anti Free shield. It's just you know that's my program. Oh, I've, I've already changed it. Find your
1: place. It's gone. It's done. Damn it. Moving on. Moving on. All right. <laughs> let's talk. Let's talk about holiday themed games. Holiday themed games. It was uh? Let's see. warspawn Thanks for the question. Yeah. So, uh this is basically. Let's go through the question a little bit. When the holiday's coming up, what do you think about creating holiday themed games and/or adding holiday themed updates as to existing games? Um. He said something too, like I, I always forget until like up and up until that month to do it. Like it always happens to me is I'll think like, ooh, maybe a Halloween theme. And it'll be like October 14th or something, you know, and I'm maybe like November 1st. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's more that's more accurate. Exactly. You know, early on in our careers we did a lot more of this stuff. We did um see if you remember this. We added Super Meat Boy into Onslaught. Mm-hmm. Remember that weirdness? And I don't even remember why we did it aside from like uh, <laughs> how can we try to get more people to play the game? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't go very well. We had some other, let's see, was it, uh, wait, was it Valentine's Day? Uh, had, I don't know. We had hearts at some point. We've tried that a few times, and I think that it's hard because when you're a tiny little shop like us, you know, it's you're not going to make a splash. You might uh, get like reinvigorate your, your players of your current game if you've got them. I think. Oh, we added the uh, the skyrocket thing to
0: AWL one for Fourth of July. Skyrocket in
1: flight. We did, and it was kind of cool. That actually didn't go too bad. We had a little promo image, made a blog post about it, but a update on Steam. Uh, it was a really fun weapon. I think. You know, it like a like a firecracker, and then when it landed, it had like, multiple explosions. Pop 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 pop. You know, just like fireworks. Pretty yeah. cool. I think that went uh, reasonably well. I think that bigger companies like blizzard will often have like here's a like in world of warcraft or you know hots or something it'll have like here's a christmas event i guess and those things seem to go really well i think it works fantastically with a game that you're already playing every day because like we were saying earlier it kind of breaks up that monotony right like you might go play hots on Thanksgiving to kill some time and you might be pleasantly surprised to see like you know you get a big turkey platter when you win or something like that
0: right Yeah, and then, like, you know, they, you know, HOTS especially has things like, oh, it's a holiday skin, right? Like, uh, I think during Christmas they debut, like, you know, the Great Father Winter Rhaegar and stuff, and they put those skins on sale. You know, it's like even the years after you launch it, right, it still has benefit, right? Like maybe that skin's only available in December every year. Right. From the shop or something. You know, I think rarity is a really interesting thing. I don't know. I kind of waffle on it sometimes because – part of me feels like okay it's really annoying that somebody wants to play your game and they want something specific and they have to wait until you know x date for it to happen
1: um
0: but you know i think that it's you know people by and large tend to enjoy it to a certain degree right like there's a lot of holiday stuff in wow and like if you it's like one week on whatever month on that year and if you miss it then like you're screwed until next year like that's that's just the way it goes
1: it does add some emergency to you playing the game which is very important these days especially when it's like you might sit down and be like okay which of these 10 games am I going to play that i have been meaning to play or that I play sometimes right and if you look and see oh this game has an event just for this weekend or just for this week or you know whatever just today yeah. it, it is it's going to increase the importance of playing that game it would probably give it a leg up yeah. So there was a talk. I want to talk about this talk. I have a meta talk. It's, talk about the talk. This is by uh, Jake Bur- Burkett, who is a um, hardcore indie game developer. Uh, this talk is really worth watching. I, I want to have maybe a whole podcast about this, perhaps. It's really good. But uh, I just wanted to mention he had this kind of scenario where he would release uh, Christmas games, right? He goes by the long tail. He plans out, you know, like hopefully this game will keep, like, keep making money for five years or something like that, right? Um, Because with small teams like us, you know, we're not going to make a game that's going (laughs) to make like fifty grand in the first week or whatever, right? Like, you're, it's, it's if it's going to make money, it's going to be over a long period of time, and so he had made like a, you know, a Christmas themed match three game or whatnot. And you can look over like several years, and he kept tracking magnificent tracking of his data. You can see that like each Christmas, that game makes a chunk of money, whereas the rest of the year, maybe not, right? Huh. But I think that targeting that, like it's really just one more niche, which as, we, as we've talked about, indies really need that niche, right? Because otherwise, you're trying like you're just shouting into the void, right? Like you can't compete with all these other giant companies like Blizzard, you know? Right. But when you go for a super niche, you're like, look, if you just want like the small little Halloween themed roguelike. This is your game, and people might be really into it that whole you know week before Halloween or something, and then November happens and they forget about it, but then maybe next Halloween happens, and you give it a small update, and then you know it gets featured in the Steam store sale or Halloween special or something like that, and it could be the kind of thing where you know the game never really became a hit, but every how cool does that sound right like every Halloween you get a nice little bump in in your income. that sounds pretty yeah. great so
0: as far as I understand his setup, like he has like games that are sort of kind of about the same mechanics-wise, right, that that are kind of branded differently for each
1: holiday? He is the kind of developer who will take a game, like let's say a match-three game, uh, very much like Spiderweb Software, which we often talk about, right? And he'll be like, I'm going to make another game, I'm going to reskin it, and I'm going to improve all these things I wanted to improve in that last game, didn't have time. So like every time he makes a game, it's going to be notably better than his last one and probably have a new skin, which that gives him a new market opportunity.
0: Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's smart in a lot of ways, right? We talk about, niches and stuff like you were saying yeah Um and holidays are one of those things that almost everybody can get into to some degree right yeah like even if it's just like the bare bones like yeah it's halloween i guess like ah, you know whatever skeletons pumpkins like it's fine you know yeah <laughs> you know all the way to someone who's like actively seeking out like oh yeah this is like i really <laughs> i really dig this halloween theme or whatever right um so i, I don't know i think that's that's smart because you've got you know, you've got themes that appeal to a, a wide audience, right? Right. And then he kind of pairs it with sort of like casual puzzle games, which also appeal to a broad audience. Like, that's a good marriage, right? Yeah. Like, I was sort of just wondering to myself, like, oh, what would happen? Like, let's say we made a very, very simple roguelike engine, right? Right. And we decided that we were going to skin it for holidays, right? Yeah. So you start off with like Halloween, pumpkins, skeletons, witches, whatever, and then Christmas time, it's like reindeer and elves and snow yeah. and stuff. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you could make that into separate games. Like, would the market tolerate that? Or would they be like, you know, oh, this is basically the same game, but with different
1: graphics, essentially, right? I think the market has shown us repeatedly that it will tolerate a lot. <laughs> yes. You know, like the, re- the people reskin like mad, and they don't do it because they like losing money, right? They- it's a winning proposition and it sounds awful to a lot of us especially indie developers right like the reason i think a lot of us want to go indie is because we want to make these cool original impactful games but i think the reality is we talked about this before is you know maybe you need to do that thing where you have like your art game or whatever then you have your money game right and your money game could be this kind of thing like uh, like jay briquette's done here or that spider web Software's done where you've got like okay look yeah let's say it's mass 3 these games sell people play them and every single time I make one, like I make one every six months, I reskin it, I improve it in, you know, some noticeable ways. And now I've got like those sell, they make some amount of money, right? Like, And it doesn't get me out of bed in the morning. I don't love it. You know, it's not my passion. Maybe, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But then you've got your other stuff like, okay, I spend, you know, the other six months of my year or whatnot working on my passion game, you know, like this yeah. stuff, this is really important to me.
0: It sounds like a really uh, cool way to kind of like do it as a hobby but with an eye towards sustainability right like yeah you could just create something really small like the smallest example of a rogue like game perhaps you know just for or like a tactics game or whatever yeah and then skin it for whatever the current holiday happens to be yeah put it up for sale whatever like leave it there and then like let that version be alone and then like kind of like do what these other guys do and improve the engine right and reskin it for the next holiday release it again And then, you know, keep and then that way. Like, you know, the game itself, it's not just a complete reskin. You're actually improving and adding content probably. Right. As well as reskinning. And then you also get the benefit of perhaps tapping into, you know, well, I don't really love witches and, you know, pumpkins maybe, but I'm like super into patriotic stuff or whatever. Right. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm getting more and more into that, you know, like, um, and it's a difficult thing because when we first started getting into this industry, it was very much more like, you know, we want to find out how to even make games and we want to find our voice and express that voice and stuff like that but that's a hard thing to figure out while at the same time is trying to pay the bills and those those two kind of things they contradict each other right like there's conflict there for sure
0: if you think about steam like a lot of their big sales are just like coinciding with
1: holidays right so holidays is not a bad like not a bad thing to target right I I kind of do at this point, I wish I had a game engine that was really skinnable and like easy to uh, like add one more thing to, right? And that way I could be like, okay, look, here's a, you know, another version of, there's a sci-fi version, you know, and it took me like two weeks just to draw some new graphics and add some new sounds, maybe throw in some new music or something. But like, you know, it plays just like this other game I launched, except it's got like one new mechanic, right? Or one new macro feature or something like that. And that incremental way of building stuff, you know, that can seem unexciting. Like, we all want to take leaps, you know? Like, you want to, you want to be like a rocket. You want to shoot forward, right? <clears throat> but sometimes you need these more deliberate, kind of slow-paced steps, right? Like, slow and steady wins the game.
0: Yeah. That's kind of what I was thinking of, right? It's like, it's a good way to kind of pace yourself and, you know, make incremental progress and have incremental goals. And, and, and also come away with, like, several different SKUs that you can make money from right
1: yeah yeah exactly that's something else that uh, uh the great aliens games talk um, was talking about was you know like he probably never would have survived if he didn't have such a great portfolio of all these games and that's the thing too you know let's say you've got 10 games and you launched them like most of them have been launched like five years ago or something like they only now start making their money like he had this one game it was crazy it made uh something like six percent of all of its sales in the first year and he was on year nine and it ended up making like hundreds of thousands of dollars like low hundreds but like wow. But seriously, you look at that and it really made me think a lot because, you know, with Soul Thief, it looks like just a big disaster, right? But if you look at the long tail, you know, let's say the game gets done and and we solve these design problems and the art's way better and and everything, Uh, you know, even that first year, for even the first two years, it might be like, okay, it was was kind of a loss, right? Like it was doing nothing but losing money. But then, you know, five years down the road, if if we're smart business people and, you know, we follow... (laughs) <laughs> i just had to vomit a little bit there yeah uh, you know what i'm saying though like yeah yeah it, the game the money <laughs> the game can make money down the road even if it doesn't like if it launches as a failure yes there's hope
0: so that kind of you know transitions nicely into you know
1: what are we doing and how are we going to approach <laughs> ldg moving forward right? look at that segue yeah so a question from uh aaron uh supporter on twitter thanks a lot man I uh, love hearing these questions. I love just getting tweets. So, yeah, I wants to know um, where is LDG at and what's coming up next and uh, and whatnot. Um, so, I think that, you know,
0: it's always fun to kind of look back and see <laughs> where we've been. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that you just talked about with Soul Thief is like, you know, it's easy to kind of look back on it and be like, well, it hasn't really gone as well as we'd wanted to and, and all that stuff. But... You know, I think that we're kind of starting to get past that and move into a better place where, you know, like you've got indie game sim, which I think is a great idea, right? Like that we should be doing more stuff like that, right?
1: Yeah, small stuff.
0: More, yeah, smaller games. And honestly, like I want to just take my own advice and like work on, you know, something in the same vein as like a holiday themed game that has a very simple premise, right? Just something like bite-sized stuff that I can iterate on that you know we can create more of a portfolio and like blah, 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 you know?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'll like put that a link. Sounds- it, that, that sounds like smarter, right? And like I'm, I'm tired of being stupid. And <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not just that. Like a lot of it is trying to follow our passion, trying to find a voice, trying to speak with that voice, trying to find out... You know, we talk a lot about like what games should you make. Is it the games you're good at making? Is it the games you love making? Is it is it, you know, topics that you like? Is it genres that you're capable of producing? Like what game you should work on, especially when you're when you're independent, you don't have a boss just telling you. Right? Like that is a really hard question to answer. And it's one where you have to commit. Like let's say it'll take you two years to finish that game. You better make the right decision about which one you went with, right? Yeah. So And uh, like we've just
0: seen how overwhelming large games can be. And even oh, Soul yeah. Thief is like that's that's still
1: a fairly large game, no, like in a lot huge. of ways. It is, it's way out of scope for anything we could have finished in the amount of time that we had allotted for it. Crazy scope, yeah. <laughs> crazy, crazy. Yeah, you, you made a game called uh, Turkey Hunt, and you made it in one day, and it's uh, it's just a real simple uh, whack-a-mole type game. But you did it for Thanksgiving a couple of years ago and then i went in and did some graphics and it was like a two day thing bam done and it felt good right and we actually did we sold some licenses for that game you know like I, this is something actually that uh, that jake perquet was doing that i thought was really cool he would calculate how much time he spent working on a game in various capacities how much he would track like the uh, actually money the game made and then add yeah. those up and be like when i worked on this game i made 650 an hour and he'd be like when <laughs> oh, i worked no. on this game i made 200 dollars an hour you know oh. And you can look and see which games were successful and which weren't. And you can, you know, that helps you answer that question of which game should I make next, right? Right, yeah,
0: that's true. I mean, that's something that we've been historically bad at that we should get better at, which is that, you know, <clears throat> playing to the market, right? Like like doubling down on what works and, like, not pre-committing. You know, I, I think it's really easy, right, in, in the game world and, like, in the movie world or, <clears throat> excuse me, almost any creative industry to say, you know, Here's the thing I'm going to make and it's going to be a masterpiece and I will launch it and then everyone will love it. Right. <laughs> um but you know more and more it, it kind of seems like it doesn't necessarily work out that way, right? Like you need to like you're saying find your voice, find your niche and double down on it and part of it isn't just like you know saying, "Hey, I like roguelikes, so I'm going to make roguelikes. I'm going to be a niche roguelike developer," right? Mhm. I think there's more to it than that, right? It's like There is make some roguelikes, make some, you know, variant roguelikes, like find, you know, see how people respond to your version of roguelikes, or or maybe there's a niche for just very classic roguelikes, but that's, you know, more crowded, right? Yeah. But I think it it sort of all ends up with shipping games and looking at the numbers, right, and doing things like Jake is doing where you, you know, you have hard data, right, where you say, like, Okay, when I worked on this game, six dollars an hour, and I worked on this game, two hundred dollars an hour. Like that's a very clear mandate in a yeah, lot of ways, right? And you
1: can make that sacrifice. You know, if if working on the six dollar game was the time of your life, you know, maybe you can budget for that. Maybe you can do that again and spend your time the way that you want to, right? But other times you might be like, "Look, I need money. <laughs> I need to work on this uh, this game because it makes more money." Yeah, right. that, that's always yeah, a really I mean, hard one.
0: There's a lot of you know pieces that go into that puzzle, right? Like, right. Maybe you could take that game that made you know, maybe the game that made $6 an hour for you, the engine was really complicated and that's why it took so long. Right. What if you could reskin it and, you know, make a similar game that makes a similar amount of money but in, like, a quarter of the time?
1: You know, I think that uh, my desire to make a role-playing game, that's that's kind of one of the things that got me into game development at all, right? Um, the first games I started to work on were, like, Dragon Warrior and Final Fantasy clones. And I always wanted to do, like... Towns you can walk around in and talk to townspeople like villagers and they'll give you clues about where to go or just be kind of cute and colorful. And then the battles were all turn-based, like very Final Fantasy style. Monsters on the left, over here on the right are your characters and you pick this menu-driven system, right? And I loved playing those games when I was a kid. I still love them to this day. I don't play them that much because they're such time vampires. But the thing is, I don't really like... I mean, it's been a while. Maybe I should give it another shot. But I don't really like making that game that much. Partially because it takes for freaking ever. There's so much content and balancing that I just, I can't produce. I can't move quickly, you know? And I think that's one of the things that really just turns me off. Where these days, like, I like shipping. I want to ship more games. Like, I want to work on something for three months. And actually, three months this time. Not like where I wanted to work on three, uh, for three months on indie game sim, it ballooned into six months, right? I want something where I'm like, I'm starting today, three months from now, it's done, I don't want to work on it anymore and I can ship it and maybe make some money from it, you know. And that's just not turn-based role-playing games like Dragon Warrior. That's unless you are really good at it and you've got all your systems figured out. That's a really hard thing to do in like a short amount of time.
0: Yeah. Well, I think it's a really hard thing to do unless you're like I feel like 3 months like you have to know what you're building before you're building, right? Like yeah. Part of the problem with any game sim is that you didn't really know what you were building right away. Like nope. you had an idea but the game took various turns throughout its development, right? Yeah. <clears throat> and so, like, that's
1: that's just the nature of stuff when you're experimenting. I saw this uh, article, I think it was. I should put a link to this in the show notes, too, if I can find it. But it was, like, um, why making games is so hard. And uh, somebody used the analogy, like, uh, it feels as if you're putting a puzzle together wearing a blindfold.
0: Huh. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I thought that was great because you can do it. You can, you know, because the pieces are only going to fit if they fit and you can, you know, let's say it's a 500 piece puzzle. You're going to find it eventually, but that's going to be a, such a bastard, <laughs> you know? And if you can see, you could be like, okay, that's a blue piece. That's a blue. okay. I can see they go together. Right. And you can see the shape. Uh, but that is the thing. Like, you know, I didn't know necessarily what I was making with indie game sim. And I didn't necessarily even really want to, I wasn't, you know, out to make a clone. I wasn't just like, oh yeah, I'm just going to look at, you know, Mario Maker and here we go. We're just going to make that game. Um, but I do think that like that kind of thing can have as, as advantages sometimes. You know, you, you could have an epiphany where you're like, man, there's this really simple mobile game I like. I just think they needed one more thing and I really hate the skin. There's your game idea. And you can probably yeah. bang that out quickly because most of the questions have probably been answered for you because it's largely like... um almost like a study at that point. It's not like you're trying to create something from scratch wholly original. Instead you're doing that tried and true method where it's 90% known and you know 10% new or something, which is, as we've seen, not as sexy and exciting to work on as a creative person, but your audience will probably be more receptive to it because they get it. They understand it more, right? Whereas if you give them 90% new and 10% familiar, they might be like, look, there's not enough to latch on to here. Like I don't I don't have time to learn all this new crap. This is not familiar to me, so I'm gonna bail, you know.
0: And like the reality is, is if you want more time to get better at making your artistic stuff, like you need a way to feed yourself. And and like, as we've seen, like if you can make the game development thing work for you, like as a full-time job like that is way better for you in the long term because you will get to be working on game code and working on your tools and working on your skills every single day. Right. As opposed to doing it as a hobby, you know, not that you can't do it as a hobby, but you know, the more time you spend invested in something, the better you're going to be at it exactly Um, so i think that like even if you want to make an artistic game i think it still behooves you to think about like maybe making small niche-based games as a sustainability step right
1: yeah the sustainable thing is is heavy on my mind recently because like you know i think a lot of indies you know you just want to do this forever but the thing is is like you know you don't always get to work on your creative dream and uh also have a, a reasonable salary at the same time like Not everybody gets to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, and like, you know, a lot of indies don't either, right? Like, if you think about it, um, all the stuff we're talking about, which is like playing to the market and and doing things like that, it's like, that's not stuff you want to do necessarily.
1: Yeah. I uh, admire, I don't know if I admire, but I'm I'm envious of people who, they just kind of really like the market stuff, the business side of it, like tracking sales and reaching out to YouTubers or whatever and making business connections and... You know, just the min-maxing around the profit of a game and whatnot. That's the stuff that's never really interested me. It's all kind of like, I guess, tertiary to game development. You know, I really just want to sit there. I want to program. I want to draw some art. I want to get music from Josh. I want to stick it all together. And I want to make this nice, cohesive experience. And then I want to be done. I want to walk away from it. And I want it to just make money somehow, <laughs> magically. <laughs> somehow. And that's the thing, uh, you know, when you want to do it all yourself and make a business out of it. That's the tricky yeah. part. You can't just, can't just create and then walk away.
0: So, I think that, you know, for LDG moving forward, like, what what would be
1: our goals for 2017, do you think? You know, I've got this article. Oh, so much, so much to do. So much reading I got to do. And one of these articles, let's see. Oh, I have it right here. Um, the power of clarity. Uh, clear goals are essential. And I think that's one of, that's been one of my problems for a long time. My goal will be, like, you know, continue making games. <laughs> yeah uh, it's not a clear goal you know it's like that you know those tickets where it's
0: like implement final boss <laughs> right. you're like uh okay like i understand what you're getting at <laughs> but the road between a and b is you know shrouded in fog and mountain yeah. passes and wolves that try to
1: attack you and. You know, <laughs> exactly <whatever else. laughs> I don't know. Uh, that's a hard one. What, like I would need to think about even how to define those goals and what we can reasonably accomplish in a year. But I think that uh, you know we had this period where we we're making decent money from our first party games, and that that's long gone now. So um, a lot of it's tied to you know we need to work uh, for you know contracts or jobs or whatever to, to pay the bills. So um, the time we have for LDG is limited. Yeah,
0: I think though that kind of like pushes in the direction of making smaller things anyway, right? Like yeah, my goal at some point <laughs> is to, <laughs> you know, create a very, very small tactics game. Nice. Um, and then iterate on it kind of like we were talking about yeah, before. Right. And just see if like, you know, is it possible to like build up, you know, essentially a following or a niche or just, you know, a community of people that like these products where the product is built on the same basic premise and you do get into that mindset where you're just improving the engine and adding new content and like releasing it as a new game.
1: Yeah, I'm into it. I like it. And you know, it's not as a permanent replacement to everything else we're doing, you know, like I still want to sure. work on stuff like indie game sim where I do feel like I've actually got a voice in there and I do think that there are some original components to the game, you know. But at the same time, I also want to be able to pay my bills, so I I find that really attractive of like here's this nice, clean, concise game engine and I made a game with it and you know easter's coming up in two months or whatever and i'm (laughs) working on a skin for that i think i think that's smart from just the business side it's not going to probably satisfy your creative itches but business side
0: yeah anyways it's all interesting stuff um i want to say big thanks to all our lost cast listeners for sticking with us for 200 episodes five years
1: some some listeners have been with us for five years um and we get emails all the time from people like, "Hey, I just started listening around, like you know, episode 100, or I've been listening for two years, or yeah, a lot of people sticking with us uh, through ups and downs. Good stuff. Yeah, I mean, through all the Deppercasts, for depper all cast. the
0: Politicasts. Politic-
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, the Deserts, the the Crypt uh, Change Log. The Change Log. There, there have been yes. some, yeah periods of prosperity as well as uh, periods of despair. <laughs> and if you're still here, it means you have forgiven us, and that's, all that's right. <laughs> Yes.
0: Well, you know, thanks for all the encouragement and support. And here's to 200 more.
1: Wow. That would be very impressive. That would be uh, at least four more years.
0: Yes. Well, we accelerated. Yeah. (laughs) We accelerated quite a bit, right? Like, even though we've been podcasting for five years, you know, especially the first year or two, you know, I I bet it'll be interesting to go back and look about, you know, how many podcasts we produced each year. Months would go by in that
1: first year. Because we'd be like, (laughs) Are we going to record today? Eh. <laughs> if given the option, we will do the laziest. We pick the laziest option. I wonder, like, what episode
0: is it? Where we started we, doing weekly? Were we st- like, where we really committed to weekly and yeah, we I was, you know, r- rarely missed.
1: I was wondering about that. Because uh, there was a time, I think at some point, we were like, look, let's either stop the podcast or start doing it every week so people can actually find it. Know when to find it. And that was when it started growing as well yeah, because then it was like "Hey, right? yeah tuesdays tuesdays man otherwise it's like i don't know every month or three <laughs> who, who doesn't get excited about that hey what are you doing next Marchish? <laughs> are you ready for a lost cast You're like i don't know maybe uh, uh, that's a good question I'm, I'm curious about that i'm sure astute listeners know but i would guess it would be within the first two f- years 50 it's got to be within the first yeah year or two Anyway, interesting stuff. Um, Yeah, launch an indie game sim on December 8th. You can wishlist it right now on Steam. I'll put a link in the show notes. Check it out. So um, I said many months ago I wanted to launch another game this year. And you did. I I feel good about that, but I feel like I asked that Soul Thief will not be done because that was part of the deal As I wanted to launch two games this year. Uh, Uh, Not realistic. Yeah, I mean, I have
0: mixed feelings about soul Thief. I i don't think it's it's that bad to you know to let it take forever it bake <laughs> yeah like i mean if you think about it I, i'm trying to think about games as less like you know we're committed to this product and we have to push it out you know especially something that's an early access right it's like right. sort of known to be an experiment in some ways and like uh, i think it's okay to kind of
1: like refine it over some time and that's kind of the whole point you know you get some pushback where people might be like look you guys have changed the design drastically twice just over the period of the early access like you know you can lose some confidence understandably but you know to counter that the whole point of early access is to get it out there to get feedback to to help it not be just this catastrophic failure like the first time people see it they're like bull you know like By the time it's done, it could be pretty good because it has had exposure to early access. It has gone through refinement. So in the end, it could be, you know, hey, this really benefited from the early exposure and the feedback and the constant iteration. Yeah, I mean,
0: in a lot of ways, like you could say that, you know, coming into contact with customers and really figuring out your game sucks early is (laughs) much better, right? And and, and doing a whole bunch of redesigns is much better than just... Toiling away on it for six months or a
1: year more, exactly. and
0: then la- giving it a "quote unquote" proper launch. Yeah, to
1: you know, crickets. <laughs> right. So basically, like I've got something like two weeks at this point, and um, Indie Game Sim is largely frozen. Like I'm getting finally some bug reports and you know uh, user interface suggestions and stuff like that, and I'll probably implement some of those. But the game is largely um, frozen before launch. So that'll go out, and if it does decently, then I might continue on it. And I it it could even get that feature where, like, with working with Steamworks, you can save your, or share your games with friends and stuff. I'm mm-hmm. not holding my breath. My expectation is that it'll launch and, and do worse than I expect, and then I'll just have to move on, which is okay, because that's kind of been, you know, I, I don't have any uh, delusions here. I don't expect it to do very well. I, I mostly just wanted to get the practice and increase the portfolio and make something kind of small and bite-sized and blah, blah, blah. So, once that's out there, you know, it'll kind of depend on, on how it does, whether it gets more of my time or not. Uh, but, like, yeah. this week, I started pivoting back towards Soul Thief. And, like, for example, now, the library and the kitchen are both donezo. Donezo. They're done. Nice. They're done. There's, there's five monsters and five traps. There's new content. There's new monsters. There's new traps. They both feel relatively fleshed out because uh, I think each of them have now more content than they used to have. And it's all with the new mechanics with the, uh, the twin-stick shooter you know, feeling and whatnot.
0: Awesome. So
1: my plan is basically do the same thing to the courtyard, do the same thing to the wizard's lab. And if things are going well and I have the time, I want to get back to that playroom. I want to work on the sewer. The whole thing here I want to do is basically just make a whole bunch of really good content. Yeah. And like hopefully this redesign, like we took some steps backwards, right? In a yes. lot of ways.
0: Um but the hope is is that you know one step backwards, two step forwards kind of thing.
1: We'll <laughs> be Paula Abdul. <laughs> Remember that one the cartoon no. cat? I take two steps forward. You take two steps back. No, am I singing myself here? Yep. (laughs) You don't know this song. I don't. I I know a lot of our audience does. Some of them are like, "I've heard of Paula
0: Abdul," but like, I was not really. You know, I'm not the most (laughs) musically inclined person. That's true. And especially like during the 80s.
1: Well, you had like 80s pop music. Come on.
0: I no. (laughs) It's weird. Like Michael. Like I never listened to Michael Jackson. Oh,
1: stuff like what. no, that's weird. Oh, what you're I at. love Michael. I was just listening to Michael Jackson the other day, so good. And I keep getting surprised too. I'll be like, I forgot about that song because you know about you know Thriller and Beat It and Billie Jean and stuff like that, right? He's got so many good like B sides and songs you haven't you heard that much. Oh man, I could go on all day about Michael Jackson. That's good. <laughs> we were talking about Paul Abdul. We're really getting into tangent, uh, the tangential weeds here into the end of the show. I think it's because. uh growing up my dad and my
0: mom listened to like 60s music mm. like so like my household is full of like beach boys and simon and garfunkel and okay that kind of stuff like no, no one that i knew or no one that i was exposed to listened to like 80s pop music interesting and so it just wasn't like
1: on my like wasn't a thing in my world i got gotcha. you yeah it was weird My parents never really listened to much music. What they liked to do was put on classical music when we were eating dinner. Mm. And it kind of classed up dinner a little bit. You know, it made you put your elbows on the table a little less and speak more respectfully. It was a little weird. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. My brother, though, I had a brother who was seven years older than me, and he kind of established my musical taste uh, at an early age because, you know, he was probably something like 15. I'm probably something like eight. So he's discovering music, and I'm like, what's music? My brother's cool. And so he would listen to stuff like Nine Nails, Depeche Mode, Gravity Kills. And I got really into like synth and uh, like synthesis and, you know, Depeche Mode especially, Uh, 80s music, Duran Duran. Oh, man, so much good stuff from the 80s and 90s. Yeah.
0: Like, well, when I started becoming more musically inclined, like uh, it was about the same time I was, you know, hanging out with friends that were into punk mostly. Yeah. You know, so like everything I listened to was all like, you know, either old punk
1: or kind of like new school skate punk. Oh, yeah. I, mean, I had a lot of friends in high school who uh, they wore flannels and loved punk and probably also Nirvana. Uh, yeah. They would like... I ha- yeah. I had my grunge phase. Grunge phase, yeah, for sure. I had I had a flannel in high school. It was like, I don't know, you kind of had to wear one. There was like, dude, where's your flannel? I, it's, uh, it's I the think there's still,
0: <laughs> there's still a picture of me somewhere that my mom has where I'm like, it's like a school photo and I'm wearing like a flannel and I've got like really... Long like Kurt Cobain style hair. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh man. We'll find a picture somewhere. No. I'll use it as the MP3 art. Gross. Speaking of music, we are going through more Joshua Morse music. He is doing some original music for Indie Games Him. Ooh. Yeah. Very a cool. lot of it's just uh ganked from Waveform. Speaking of Waveform, uh, we're gonna play you out with Galactic EQ bands. I'll play to that in the show notes. Be sure to check it out. Thanks for listening to this. A uh, very long episode. Thanks for being here with us for the last, whatever whatever that number may be. Maybe you just showed up and you're like, who are these guys? Maybe you've been here since episode one, as we know some of you have been. It uh, doesn't really matter. We appreciate you listening, taking the time to hang out with us. Uh, and, yeah, here's to 200 more, man. Wouldn't that be cool? Ship it. The other day, Koopa was sitting in my lap, and uh, Andrea said something that she accomplished. So I put my hand up for a high five, and she'd, she'd smacked. She did like a nice, solid high five. Koopa like, jumped up off of my lap, moved off of me, and immediately curled up away from me. <laughs> Aww. He was like, no. No nope. No sudden, sharp, loud noises. <laughs> not I don't for, like it. <laughs> not for puppy. <laughs> <laughs>